0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored.
3: Coming up on tonight's programme.
2: Serious politics is back, also they say, after seeing off Forrest Johnson and Liz Truss. How will Labour's Keir Starmer deal with Rishi Sunak?
3: The Home Office processed just 4% of asylum claims last year. But will the department manage to support anyone? Even Suella Braveman came back straight to our old job.
2: <laughs> don't ask, don't tell. James cleverly warns gay football fans they'll have to make some compromises if they go to the World Cup in Qatar.
4: Live from London, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored with Kate McCann and Harry Cole.
2: Good evening from London and welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored with me, Kate McCann, and the political editor of The Sun, Harry Cole, filling in for Piers, who is still on his sunbed out in L.A. and still waiting for that call from Rishi Sunak. Well, Harry, look, both of us were in the press gallery today for PMQs. What was your take from Rishi Sunak's first outing?
3: Well, I don't think it could have gone better for him. He had, uh, for the first time I can remember, since about 2019, the Tory bench is absolutely <laughs> roaring... Yeah. Behind him, he was polished, he was a smoothie, a complete contrast to either the sort of bumbling performance Boris Johnson used to do or the slightly meek performance of Liz Truss, and I have to say, Keir Starmer was in a bit of a pickle because he tried to throw lots of different lines at, at, uh, at, at, at the new PM to see what would stick. I'm not sure any of them did. The only fly in the ointment, I would say, is that um, the appointment of Suella Braveman, I think, is going to come back and haunt Rishi Sunak throughout his, the early days of his tenure.
2: Yeah, well, let's just have a look at how Rishi Sunak dealt with the moment when Keir Starmer brought up the appointment of the Home Secretary.
3: The Home Secretary made an error of judgment, but she recognised that. She raised the matter and she accepted her mistake. And that's why why I was delighted to welcome back into a united cabinet that brings experience and stability to the heart of government.
2: They go. I mean, he's talking there about bringing experience back, but what we know really is that it's about party unity. Mm. And there are some people who suggest that behind the scenes, a deal was done between the two of them that she was always going to walk back into that job.
3: Yeah, I thought it was quite amusing that uh, the new Prime Minister stood on the steps of Downing Street yesterday and said he was going to be above party politics. All of that's gone away, and integrity is <laughs> going to be at every single level of his government. And the first thing he does is, as you say, cut a, a backroom deal to a point. To appoint the uh, the Home Secretary, who is of the right of the party, it was crucial in getting rid of Boris Johnson's uh, attempt to come back at the weekend, and uh, we understand tonight that senior civil servants were arguing against that appointment, so one of the first things the new Prime Minister has done, having, after all the mess of, uh, of the last few years, has actually ruled gone on on an issue of integrity over all advice and appointed someone deeply controversial.
2: Yeah, do you think he's going to be able to get over that decision or is it going to dog him? He's in
3: quite a powerful position now and um, I don't think there would be many tears shed if he had to lose her one more time.
2: Yeah, well, that question of Suella Braveman is one, of course, that came up again and again in Prime Minister's questions. And let's get the government's view on that because joining us now from Westminster is Transport Minister Lucy Fraser. Lovely to have you with us this evening. I want to start by asking about that PMQ session because we heard Rishi Sunak there defending his decision to reappoint the Home Secretary, but it has come up a number of times since. Is six days enough time, do you think, when a minister has made such a big mistake, admitted to it, shared cabinet level secret documents on a private email address to then be readmitted to one of the top jobs in the land?
5: Well, I think you saw the Prime Minister's position on that very clearly, and you've just done the clip. You know, she, she made an error of judgment, and uh, she apologised for it. She admitted her mistake. Um, she brought it to the attention of the Cabinet Secretary, and she resigned uh, and so she, she had a consequence for that, but, you know, there was a new government that was appointed. And uh, Rishi has appointed him, as he was entitled to do, in, in that reshuffle. And Harry mentioned about experience. I mean, I think we should remember that Suala does, in fact, have a great deal of experience. She's been the Attorney General. She was a barrister. So she's steeped in justice, and she is a good appointment for Home Secretary on that basis.
3: Hi, Lucy. It's one of the most important jobs in government. The, the classified secret information that goes across the Home Secretary's desk it, it, it would, it would shock any of us. Are you really comfortable with one of your colleagues feeling the need to email that round uh, just to ask for advice, ignoring all the usual channels? It's completely not on, isn't it?
5: Well, obviously it's not my decision, but what I can tell you is that uh, all ministers have to go through uh, professional ethics uh, assessments before they are appointed. Uh, they aren't appointed if that, uh, if that uh, ethics assessment throws up something. So she will, I am confident and sure, um, have been through the uh, professional ethics um, are, you co- are you comfortable, uh, though, with the Prime Minister
3: seeming to ignore senior civil servants and their advice on probity and ethics?
5: I'm sorry, I missed that, Harry. Are
3: you comfortable with your new Prime Minister seeming to ignore senior civil servants' advice on ethics?
5: Well, I'm not sure what the situation is, is with what advice was given, uh, how that was taken, uh, but what I can tell you is that the Prime Minister um, has uh, acted as he, uh, as he can do. He will have... She will have gone through that uh, ethics assessment. And I worked with Rishi for a year, and I can tell you uh that from my perspective he is uh he has integrity uh, and professionalism in spades well you said
2: he's done what he can do but of course he could have appointed somebody else to be home secretary but let's move on because lots of people around the country will be wondering tonight given that the government has moved the date of the financial statement back by a couple of weeks that gives you enough time to find a way to solve the 35 billion pound black hole that you have in the public finances how do you plan to do that
5: Uh, Well, Kate, I was a minister in the Treasury, and uh, as you will know, and I'm sure many ministers have said to you, it would be inappropriate, uh, even if I knew all the details, to identify what will be in the fiscal statement.
2: Well, all right, let's try another one. Will you be keeping the triple lock in place in that statement?
5: Well, the Prime Minister was asked that today, and I I think he uh, answered entirely accurately. (laughs) If we look at what he has done in the past, he has always been there. Uh, for people who need it. He's, you know We saw that during uh, Covid with the furlough scheme. We saw that with his energy package. It was one of the things that he identified uh, that he was going to continue in relation to uh, the, the, the former Prime Minister. You know, he, he congratulated Liz on her energy support. So I think he will be looking after people, but for the details of that, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait for the statement.
3: Lucy, a week ago, the Chancellor said the triple lock was up for grabs, potentially on the table. He was then last Wednesday overruled by the Prime Minister, the then Prime Minister, who said, "Actually, no, it's, it's secure." Now, today, the, the Number Ten of the Treasury is saying that they won't make that, they won't confirm that. So, should pensioners go to bed tonight worried about what they're going to get next year or not?
5: Well, there will be a fiscal statement on the seventeenth of November. It's not far away, um, and we will see all the details then.
3: Another big issue tonight is migration. Um, is the Prime Minister going to have an answer for? The other great debate that was going on in the previous administration a week ago about whether net migration should go up or down, if it can get growth going. Where do you stand on that?
5: Uh, Well, the government's position is um, that it is really important that we do tackle uh, illegal immigration to this country. Um, And that's what the Home Secretary, Sorolla Braverman. Uh, is absolutely committed to, and I know that the Prime Minister is committed to that as well. Uh, But we also do need to ensure that we have the necessary skills for people uh, who need to work in some industries here.
3: So you're happy to see the numbers go up?
5: I think the Prime Minister is committed to ensuring that we tackle uh, uh, the issue of illegal immigration. Uh, And I know that he's going to do uh, and is uh, is committed to ensuring in particular we tackle the issue in relation to the channel boats uh, crossings. um, uh, Where those numbers are rising unfortunately uh, all the time.
2: But let's just separate those two issues out, because what we were just asking you about was the overall number of people who are coming into the country in relation to growth. Many people say if you increase the number of people who come into the UK, who take up jobs here, then that will grow the economy pretty quickly. That's something that Rishi Sunak is going to need to do, I reference back to that £35 billion black hole. Are you saying that net migration should go up or down tonight?
5: Well, there's a balance in relation to immigration, isn't it? And I know that one of the things that Rishi was very committed to when uh, he was the chancellor uh, was ensuring that people here are trained in the skills that we need for those jobs. He put together a significant package of support uh, for employers and employees, boot camps, upskilling. He was looking at the time he was chancellor about how we could support uh, employers to give more skills uh, to their employees. So I know that he will look at that as well. Thanks. And, and, and just finally,
2: <laughs> Harry's trying to let you get away too soon there. Just finally, I want to ask you about uh, some comments that James Cleverly has made today on Qatar. He has said that people, LGBTQ people who are travelling to Qatar need to be respectful of the country's cultural norms. Are you comfortable with what he said? Because it has upset some people.
5: I think what, what James was talking about was... Uh, What he was saying, and as a Foreign Secretary, he will be extremely acute of, is the government always raises issues in relation to human rights and and people's rights uh, with countries directly. And I'm sure he does that uh, as Foreign Secretary uh, with countries across the world. Uh, But what he was saying in addition to that was that, you know, when people do go to various countries, of course, they need to respect the laws uh, of those countries.
2: Lucy Fraser, thank you for joining us this evening. Well, let's bring
3: in tonight's pack. We have the man who was the Conservative Party chairman for 50 days, Sir Jake Berry, and lifelong associate editor of the Daily Mirror, (laughs) Kevin Maguire. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, what do you make of that?
1: Lucy was as clear as mud. (laughs) I mean, that was (laughs) absolutely appalling, wasn't it? I mean, look, she either doesn't know or can't say because she doesn't want to contradict it. I mean, look, you look at the question of the triple lock. It was in, it was out. It was in, it was out. It's like a hawky-corky. They, like... Appointment of the Home Secretary after a security breach—it's not a fly in the ointment. It's a snarling viler that is going to bite the Prime Minister. He's a huge error of misjudgment. There, he's created a problem for his own back. I mean, it's she, she couldn't then she couldn't answer on migration. What is the government's position on migration? Does it want to go up? Does it want to go down? Stay the same? What is the answer? I mean, you've, if you've come in as a new Prime Minister and a fresh start, and you're going to restore order mm. after the instability of uh, Liz Truss, then. It's a terrible start. If only somebody had written a book, <laughs> Harry, on Liz <list laughs> Trotts. We'll, had a put, book you down. Out. we'll uh, put
3: you down as on a that on... Uh, yeah, yeah, a can we can then. pre-order it. <laughs> yeah, can yeah. We, yeah.
5: yeah, the, the link
2: will be at the bottom. Um, yeah. Jake, we're going to come back to you to talk about you losing your job very shortly, but, I mean, what did you make of that interview? Because... Rishi Sunak is in a difficult position when it comes to his Home Secretary, but more to the point, some of these really big questions we still can't get the answers to.
6: Well, look, we heard yesterday from the Prime Minister that he's going to implement the Conservative Party manifesto. He said it on the steps of Downing Street. So there's good good and bad bits of that. There's good and bad bits of that, Kate. So it means that you can keep that mandate by 19 million people that Boris Johnson won. But it also means on things like the triple lock and tax risers that you're going to have to stick with what that manifesto said. And let's just remind everyone, no new tax rises and protection of the triple lock. And when I was advising the former Prime Minister about what we do on the triple lock, I pointed out to her that, you know, everyone's so clever in the Treasury, but apparently none of them can count, because you (laughs) have to be able to get the right number of Conservative (laughs) MPs to go through the lobby to vote down the triple lock, and I don't think that'll happen. On
3: on votes, Jake, one of the last actions of the government you served in was to try and whip through uh, a decision on on restarting fracking in the UK. That wasn't in the 2019 manifesto. Do you think that was a good idea?
6: Well, I do, actually. I've always been quite supportive of fracking. You say that even as a Lancashire MP. And the reason is I don't think someone who lives in Buckinghamshire or wherever it may be in the far south somewhere should have a say over whether we have fracking in Lancashire. I'm quite happy for my local residents to have their say. I think they'll all say no, but I want them to have their say. If we want to be a sovereign nation, we have to accept that we cannot be safe and secure without being self-sufficient in terms of energy. We cannot have another situation where a hostile nation so, holds us to ransom. So my view is let's go ahead with fracking. I know it's not government policy, but I've come <laughs> on to give you my view. <laughs> let's go ahead with fracking <laughs> and let, let people decide. I believe, so in, de- I b- a I believe in democracy.
3: To, to pause it again.
6: Well, it's the Prime Minister's decision to make, but, you know, I believe in democracy.
1: But he's sticking to the manifesto again, isn't he? Because it's the manifesto in 2019 said no fracking. And then all of a sudden, I think Liz said we're going to have fr- I think fracking. The only person who read it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, well, I, know, I know the number of times it's been broken which is pretty frequently.
3: Talking Kevin,
2: I mean, the, the question really now for Labour is how do they counter Rishi Sunak? Because yep. it's the first outing today. I mean, lots of people suggesting that Keir Starmer tried a good game but didn't quite manage to land a blow on the new prime minister. Yeah,
1: well, I think he did on the Home Secretary. Mm. Uh, I think pensions, that was the SNP, but we can see there's a problem there. I think he landed a a blow, you might say it's sly, on non-DOMs, drawing attention to the Chancellor's vast wealth when he's about to make cuts on ordinary working people. And that is going to be very hard for somebody who is the 222nd richest person in the country with his wife, twice the wealth of the king, 730 million, to then, to then... be telling people on low wages to tighten the
2: belts. Well, Labour's got an interesting position on this because we understand that Sir Keir Starmer had told his party not to talk about Rishi Sunak's vast wealth and not to talk about the politics of envy, as it has been called. But Richard Bergen stood up today and said, you know, he's... 200, what was it? 200,000 times richer okay. than a nurse. I mean, clearly the party is not united it's on He's
6: not 200,000 no. times richer than Keir Starmer. No, no, no
1: Keir, Keir <laughs> Starmer is comfortable and questionably because he ran the Crown Prosecution Service, was Director mm. of Public Prosecutions, mm. but Rishi Sunak is the country's richest ever Prime Minister in history. Now, that would not be a problem if he was going to play Father Christmas, but if he's going to be Scrooge and he's going to be taking away your income, he's going to be running down your services, that will become a big problem for that Prime Minister.
3: Another big row of the day, James Cleverley's comments about travelling fans, gay fans going to Qatar. Do you think he got that right? Do you think he was, you know, should people be respecting culture? What does compromise actually mean?
1: Yeah, well, I suppose James Cleverley is probably uh, trotting out the line, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. But having been to uh, Qatar uh, a couple of times and seen how oppressive mm. the police c- yeah. can be, uh, this is a World Cup. If you can normally go to a World Cup, you're gay, It's uh, not a problem. All of a sudden, you go to Qatar, I think Qatar has to change here. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of arresting, well, arresting people and putting them in prison. Jake. You know, this should have been
6: thought about before Qatar was given the World Cup. I want fans who are, who are gay to be able to go and enjoy the football like yeah. everyone else. I, mean, I understand that, sort of, as a government, we have to put forward quite a soft line to the Qataris, but I actually think that, you know, the organisers of the World Cup should have been much more
1: robust. You wouldn't
3: like to do a
6: boycott, then? Well, look, it's not for me to say I'm no longer a minister, but I think we're about to come on to
1: that. Yeah, we, we have, look, uh, cut off rightly or wrongly, is considered a big ally. They, oh. they sell us gas and then buy, buy arms. Uh, I think the government has to be very robust on human rights and the rights of people uh, mm. from England, Wales, anywhere else in the United Kingdom who go to that World Cup and defend them. If you're gay, you should not be persecuted when you go to the oh, World right. Cup.
3: J.Berry, Kevin Maguire, thank you.
2: Back with you shortly. Next, much, much more from Sir Jake Berry, speaking out for the first time since he was sacked. And with the mounting crises facing the new Prime Minister, just how will Rishi Sunak salvage the country's economy?
3: Welcome back. Sir Jake Berry and Kevin Maguire are still with us. So Jake Berry, you were fired after 50 days in a job you've always wanted. Must have hurt. Well, How even the best it? things must come to an end, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> um, you
6: know, it's an amazing opportunity to work really closely with Liz Truss as Prime Minister, but I accept that you know, there's two real appointments that are very close to the Prime Minister. The first is the party chairman, the second is the chief whip. Unfortunately, come in and out with your Prime Minister. I'd, I'd hoped for a few more days, but it was a great privilege to have the opportunity to do it.
2: You were with Liz Truss in those final, final moments in Downing Street, some of those meetings where everything was thrashed out. What was it like in there? What was the mood like? I mean, when did she really know that it was over?
6: Well, look, the, the former Prime Minister was always very chipper um, and she was a fighter, not a quitter, as I think she said to Parliament. <laughs> but then quit. Um, but then she well, quit. You know, but I think there came a point where she realised that the... the, the all the newspapers, including ones that are traditionally supportive of the Conservative Party, had really made their mind up about her. Colleagues had made their mind up about her. And there was no real way of fighting back, and that was compounded. Uh, the, the straw that broke the back of the very heavily burdened camel uh, was the chaos that we saw in the division lobby over the, the fracking vote. And it sort of that felt like the point of no return. It was extraordinary.
3: But mistakes had been made long before, then, even in the very earliest days of her premiership. When did you realise it was going south?
6: Well, you know, I I, I kept fighting. I mean, I was always the eternal optimist, and I thought... You know, I think the danger is with having changed Prime Minister now is, and I made this point to colleagues in advance of the change, I think the danger is that the real questions out there now in the country about whether we should have a general election, that would be, frankly, a catastrophe for the Conservative Party. And I do support Rishi Sunak's call to unite behind him and focus on the national interest, But I I think those questions about when that election will come will get louder and louder, particularly from opposition parties.
2: I wanted to come to that because you were responsible for the party's membership. There was a feeling over the last couple of days that the members have been ignored and they're the people who ultimately you're going to ask to vote for you. I mean, do you think that relationship between the Westminster Party and the Conservative membership is, you know, can you put it back together or is it broken now?
6: Well, look, we can always put it back together, but I think it has been severely damaged. I was a big advocate Of having a members vote. Um, I didn't really actually like when we saw the 1922 committee, the sort of all-male panel, a bit like the sort of Chinese Politburo grinning, uh, saying there is one candidate and acclaiming that candidate. I would have really liked to have seen a competition. That's not what my colleagues wanted and the Conservative Party was ready in short order to do an online vote which would have delayed the process of the selection of the new Prime Minister only by 48 hours I'm sure the members feel quite angry about that. I'm just an ordinary member of the Conservative Party as well as being an MP. I would have liked to have had my say because I didn't even get a vote in that election uh, because I was sort of, you know, in charge of the election. So, I, you know, I think it's a pity.
3: One person that could have avoided the talk of a general election is the man with the mandate, Boris Johnson. You backed him in 2009, 19. Did you want him to come back this time? Well, I backed him in
6: 2016 and 2019. I'm a long-term friend and backer of Boris Johnson, I except actually he probably wasn't the right time for him to come back. I presume he will have thoughts about coming back at some future date.
3: <laughs> but he tried very hard and he led a lot of people up the hill and, you know, sort of pulled the plug out at the last minute while people were still but, saying he should come back on television. Do you think he's disappointed you
6: know, Boris Johnson has stood in three leadership elections and withdrawn from two of them. And He's uh, surely done now, though, isn't he? Well, I don't know, you know, I think people have uh, got poor betting against the bounce back is the proverbial rubber ball keeps bouncing back. <laughs> Would you vote for him again? Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> I have to wait and see.
2: Some of the problems that that were there for Boris Johnson and for Liz Truss are still there for Rishi Sunak. And even though your party feels buoyed by Prime Minister's questions today, the reality is it's going to be, you know, a difficult couple of months. You mentioned a general election there. Do you think it's possible for the party to solve those issues without one now?
6: Yeah, I do. I mean, I thought actually PMQs was the best uh, sort of first outing at PMQs I've seen in the whatever it is now five Prime Ministers that I've seen on their first outing in that role. I thought it was... Fantastic. Look, whether we like it or not, we don't live in a presidential country. Parties get elected, parties then choose their leader and they become Prime Minister. I thought the interesting thing is that no Prime Minister since 1974 has come in and out of office by a general election. That's a very long time and it shows that both Labour and Conservatives do reserve the right to change their leader halfway through a Parliament.
2: And just give us an insight before we, we let you go, at least for this segment, what was it like to be sacked? How did that go down?
6: I understand. I've known Rishi Sunak a long time. I went in and he gave me a sort of speech about, you know, all the things I'd done which he thought were great, which was nice to hear, but then ultimately, you know, there just aren't enough seats around the table for everyone but to have a it was job. you knew coming, and, didn't you, at that you know, point? know, well, I'd, 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 I'd gone out to bat for the Prime Minister both during the... The former Prime Minister both during the leadership election and in her last days in Downing Street. And as I say, it was a personal appointment. I was very personally loyal to her. I didn't expect to continue in my role, but I do wish Rishi and his new team all the best and I really hope they can unite and win that general election.
2: Well, Jake Berry, we'll get more from you later on. But some of the issues that we were just referencing there are, of course, economic ones. And joining us now for more on that is economist (laughs) Professor Danny Blanchflower, who today outlined an alternative economic plan, stating austerity is something that Britain simply cannot afford. Lovely to have you with us, uh, Professor Blanchflower. Of course, nice to talk to you. (laughs) <laughs> we've just been hearing about some of those economic problems and the fact that there is a £35 billion black hole to fill for the government. How would you do it?
7: Well, let's just start and say this, that, that we've seen calming and we've seen an improvement in the pound and we've seen bond yields come down, but the economy is in recession. It's, there's data we've had out in the last couple of days saying basically there's recession coming. We don't know how deep and we don't know how long. And so the problem for this prime minister is going to be the data is going to determine everything. And think back to 2008. We're not that dissimilar by about September 2008. Talk was raising interest rates and trying to cut public spending. Well, the reality is you can't do that in a recession. You're probably going to have to do exactly the opposite. You're probably going to have to cut interest rates, and you're probably going to have to increase public spending. But there's the dilemma. On the one hand, there's a call to cut spending. On the other, there's a call to to basically raise it. And if you don't, that's going to be a problem because we have to talk about how are you going to cut it. I mean, if you think of the size of that number, the the UK's defence budget is about 40 billion pounds. So if you think there's a hole in the finances of 30 or 40, well, where are you going to cut from? So that's obviously the question, and the markets. They like what they've seen on the last couple of days. The question is, how is he going to cope going forward? And is he going to show the great flexibility he showed in 2008? I hope so, but this this may well be a poison chalice because the economics is going to drive the politics.
3: Danny, can you see uh, the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, who spent a long time saying he's a tax-cutting Chancellor before he became Prime Minister, can you see him in any way not having to put up taxes?
7: Well, it's certainly not a time to put up taxes. I certainly agree with that. And I think that's probably something he's going to be able to go along with. But the question is, how is he going to prevent the economy from collapsing? I mean, we had data this week. It's really just come this week, made clear. So we've had things called the surveys from purchasing managers say the UK's entered recession. We've had data on retail sales and output. So the question is, does that get worse? Does he respond and say well, I'm going to have to scrap the, the the plan that I have. They've already put it back a couple of weeks. And the reason is they have to take stock and think if we do this, what's the OBR going to say? Are they going to say that this is a sensible thing to do? And I think you know, it, it, everything's on the table. We're really going to see if you if you try and go down the road of cutting public spending, what's the public going to say? What's the public going to do, given you're so far behind in the polls? And what's the Tory voter going to say? They're not going to be happy about seeing collapse coming all around them. So I think we're sitting and waiting. The markets have responded positively. But each day we're going to watch and see how the data comes in and how soon Act responds. I think his greatest strength is probably he's shown that he can be flexible and he's going to have to be.
0: Hmm.
2: The problem is, though, the reality here is that by 2026, 40% of day-to-day government spending is going to be going on the NHS. That is a huge amount of money. I mean, is that sustainable?
7: Well, the question is, um, how, are you, how else are you going to pay for it? Now, there are obviously, you, you ask, is it sustainable? I mean, the population is ageing. How are you going to deal with it? So there are a number of things you can do. You can go use the central bank. We proposed that in, a, in an article in the Daily Mirror today. I mean, the question is, what does the public want? You can't sustain it with the current level of taxes. Somehow or other, you're going to have to pay for it. And the question is, are the public going to be prepared to do that? Um, and Will a Tory politician agree to to actually raise taxes to pay for it? So that's the issue. Do you want to have a quality public service and it'll cost you more? Are you going to keep the service where you are with 7 million people waiting for operations? What are you going to do? So there's a question. The public, in a sense, has to decide. And I assume the Labour Party and the Tory Party are going to take different views on it. And in the end, the public is going to decide. But we're going to have to get through a very tough winter and the Tories are 30 points behind in the polls not looking as if it's going to get better.
3: Professor Blansflower, while I've got you, you've, uh, your critics say that you've predicted sure. two out of the six last recessions. Uh, six out of the last two recessions, sorry. How <laughs> confident are you about this one?
7: Well, actually, I, in fact, in the UK, I've called the recessions more than better than anybody else. In, uh, I called it in April 2008, and nobody else at the Bank of England called it. I haven't called a recession since, and I've actually got papers where I called all five of the last five in the United States. So I think I actually have the... I mean, you may say it's, economics is hard and, you know, it makes, makes astrology look good. Makes politics but actually, good. I've been pretty darn good at it. And if you read what I said about about, about this uh, Trussonomics in July and August... I, I, I nailed it. No, you did see that one coming. Device, but I did nail it, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, you did. I'll I give you, I you that <laughs> one. I did nail stay, it. Stay,
3: stay there, Danny. We're going to have a chat <laughs> with Kevin Maguire <laughs> and Jake Berry. doesn't sound, does sound like good news there, does it? No,
1: I remember him getting it right in 2008. <laughs> uh, but no, look, there are no good choices if you're Rishi Sunat. There's bad and worse. And there are going to be really, really difficult choices. Now, whenever he says it, I think they're going to be your choices that are difficult for other people. Is he really going to be able to cut spending? Is he really going to be increasing taxes? He's not in a political position to do it. I think he'll just dig even deeper the hole he is in. He's got to somehow hold his nerve and try and get through this. I hope the world economy improves, that gas prices fall, fuel prices fall, so he spends less than than he thought. Mm. Because if he doesn't increase pensions Mm. by the triple lock and he breaks the link with benefits, universal credit, half of which or thereabouts goes to working people he's, he's going to just lose whatever support the Conservatives are clinging on to now.
2: Jake, your facial expressions during that interview were a picture, I have to say, <laughs> uh, but you were frowning. Fairly I was intensely.
1: laughing at <laughs> all Harry's
6: jokes.
2: But you, were, like, you were having a little bit of a giggle, but you were frowning yeah. intensely when he was talking about the economy collapsing. Yeah. I mean, you don't agree that we're at a very so, difficult so, so,
6: look, I mean, I, you've got to feel great sympathy for, uh, you know, for any politician who's having to make those really difficult decisions that Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are, are having to make. It is very, very difficult to get Conservative MPs in Red Wall constituencies to start voting to break the link between mm-hmm. the pensions, the triple lock, to break the link between earnings and benefit uprating. It's a really, really difficult scenario. But if, as the government has said that they want debt to be falling as a proportion of GDP, then, they, you know, they need to have a plan to grow GDP. And we've heard this evening that most of the supply-side reforms, are going to be scrapped, as proposed by the mm. former Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and if you do all of that, it's hard to see where the growth is going to come from. Mm. And then you get into this sort of death spiral of cuts. And I think that, you know, we have learned from the yeah. sort of 8, 9, 10 uh, recession, yeah. 20, 2010 recession, that you, you can't cut your way to prosperity. Yeah. So we need to have a plan. And whatever, yeah. you know, Danny blanchard may have said about trustnomics and, you know, they don't, they don't work or whatever, it was at least a plan to try and grow the economy. Yeah. And the final thing on tax is, look, mm. you can't talk about being the party of low tax if you're the government of the highest tax burden for the last 70 years. Mm. So there has to be a bit of ankle shown to hard-working households who sort of are looking, groaning under mm. this burden of tax. We understand it can't come now. But it's got to come in the foreseeable future. And this is the budget that really sets the tone for the next general election. It's a hugely difficult task for the new Prime Minister.
2: Yeah, well, someone who clearly isn't worried about a hugely difficult economic time is Elon Musk. Just take a look at what he's just tweeted in the last few minutes. That uh, is Elon Musk entering Twitter HQ. His tweet says, "Let that sink in." Yes, you can see a sink in his hands there. Man who uh, loves to joke as much as Harry Cole does. I mean, Kevin, what do you make of that deal finalized this week? We expect
1: finally. Well, let's let's see what he does. Does that mean Trump's back on? Hate speech can uh, run uh, oh, rampant. We saw and, him talking
3: uh, to the to, literally talking to the Kremlin directly yeah, on I Twitter. Know, I yeah, I know. I mean. Uh,
1: I find it disturbing. I mean, he's, uh, he's a, br- a brilliant business uh, person in some ways, uh, Tesla and so on, but in other ways, he is frightening. Jake?
6: Well, look, I mean, Twitter's a-, a tough neighbourhood, isn't it? But I think we have to remember <laughs> that um, people who spend a bit less time on Twitter, whoever owns it, I <laughs> reflect <laughs> uh, uh, Kevin's uh, concern. Uh, uh, but my- one of the great things about no longer... Uh, the only great thing about no longer being part of Germany is the fact that I can ignore Twitter.
2: Well, there you go. That's uh, one good thing, at least. Well, coming up next, a wish called Rwanda. Get it? (laughs) Can Sue Braverman, in her second stint at the Home Office, finally take control of the migrant crisis?
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
2: Welcome back. After a quick reprieve on the backbenches, Suela Braverman is back as Home Secretary and she'll have one thing on her mind.
0: I would love to be here saying, well, claiming victory. I would love to be having a, a front page of the Telegraph yeah. with a, fly, a plane taking off to Rwanda. That's my dream.
3: Well, this morning, the Home Affairs Committee heard some gobsmacking evidence. Just 4% of the migrants who crossed the Channel had their asylum claims processed in the last 12 months. And 85% of those claims were waved through. 16 years after John Reid declared the department not fit for purpose, things at the Home Office haven't got much better.
2: Well, we're joined now by Alec Shelbrook, Tory MP and former Defence Minister. Alec, lovely to have you with us this evening. Now, I'm sorry, Hi, to say, I'm sorry to say that you've lost your job in government, and we will come back to that uh, in a moment. But I want to start off with immigration, because Suella Braverman back at the Home Office, that means the Rwanda policy very much back on. But some question whether or not it will work as a deterrent. So, do you believe it will? Will anybody ever be sent to Rwanda?
4: Well, I think we've got to give this policy a go. And the reason I say that is because no other policy has worked. And equally for the people who are saying we shouldn't be doing this, they haven't come up with an alternative e- either. So we have a massive problem. But I do think today has shone a really important light on this um, discussion is that one of the biggest problems we face is what's going on in our own country, in our own civil service. And as you rightly pointed out, it's not just this government. It's been the coalition government. It's been the Labour government. It's been all sorts of governments. Because we go back to 2006, where John Reid rightly identified that the immigration system in this country does not work. And really, we've got to sort that out.
3: Is Suella Braveman the Home Secretary to do that, Mr Shelbrook?
4: Well, she certainly needs to be, Harry. Um, she She's on the uh, right of the party. You played the clip of... Um, what she said at the party conference, Um, I would expect her to sort this out. She's made it her mission to sort this out. She's a newly appointed Home Secretary under a new government, um, which um, started effectively yesterday. Um, And she's obviously made it her mission. So as in Harry Truman, the buck stops here, there, stops with her. And um, she has to make it work. But she equally needs to take a grip of her department, in the way that John Reid, 16 years ago, said it should be done. Because if we are not deporting people, you can fly them as far as you like. But really, it's just 96% of people not processed just shows that the real problem lies in Whitehall.
2: Yeah, I'm interested that you say that, Alec, because, you know, the stats there that Harry read out, the fact that we've got, you know, billions of pounds worth of money being spent on putting people up in hotels, the conditions in those hotels, not great for the people who have to stay in them. I mean, what do you think has gone wrong and what would you like to see Rishi Sunak actually do now quickly to try and put it right?
4: Well, Kate... Let me throw a real curveball at you. Uh, I've never had this discussion with government. but I've certainly had it with other colleagues, is that I would stick everything which is in the Justice Department back into the Home Office and take everything to do with immigration out of the Home Office and make it a separate department. Because clearly it's an overwhelming issue. And quite frankly, it needs its own Secretary of State for Immigration and a whole department dealing with just this issue. Because quite frankly, it just simply isn't working.
2: Alex Sharbrook, thank you for joining us. Kevin, I want to bring you in on that point because it is a really interesting suggestion, isn't it? Do you think it would solve the problem?
1: I don't know. I think it might just be moving people around Whitehall and you would create <laughs> more inst- civil servants, yeah, more you'd create instability in the short term. Look, the system's got to be made to work, there's no, there's no doubt. And I, I speak as somebody who's very pro-migration. Uh, I think we're enriched as a country by people coming here. But you've got to have a system that works and that includes processing claims and allowing people to come legally because some of the people coming across the, the channel... I think more than half of them are allowed to stay once they are processed yeah. and once they are here, but we're just trying right. to lock them out and use the channel as a, as a moat and it's not working. Mm.
3: So, Jake Berry, you served in the government with Suella Braven. Is she the right person to fix this?
6: Well, look, let's look at the facts. We are currently spending £7 million a day housing people, a year. housing people in hotels. we we'll just think of those seats up and down the country who'd happily take two days' worth of that money to... You know, revitalise their high streets. It's not working and I think we do need a new approach. The first thing I would like to see us commit to is if you cross the channel illegally, you should be sent back to France. You shouldn't be given asylum in this country. I would like, you know, forget planes taking off and going to Rwanda. I'd like to see ferries going from Dover to Calais or, or yeah, that way round, that's fine. Dover to Calais with people who've come to this country illegally. We have a proud history of welcoming people to this country, but there are many legal routes and if people cross illegally,
3: they should be separated. On Suella Braveman, though, you were there in the government, in the the bunker at the end when she was fired. Was it right that she came back?
6: Well, uh, six days is a long time in politics, so it's for the the new Prime Minister, and he must be free to appoint whoever he wants. But look, what I would say is, from my own knowledge, there were multiple breaches of the ministerial code, in fact, Multiple. multiple breaches of the ministerial code. It was sent from a private email address to uh, another member of Parliament. She then sought to copy that individual's wife and accidentally sent it to a staffer in Parliament. To me, that seems a really serious breach, especially when it was documents relating to cybersecurity. as I believe. That seems a really serious, serious breach. The Cabinet Secretary had his say at the time. I doubt he's changed his mind in the last six days, but that's a, that's a matter for the new Prime Minister. And did
2: she hold her hands up to it in that meeting? Did she admit it? Well, I wasn't,
6: I wasn't in the meeting, but as I understand it, the evidence was put to her and she accepted the evidence rather than the other way around.
2: Jake Berry, Kevin Maguire, thank you very much. Still ahead, just 25 days from Qatar 2022 and with controversy over the country's record on gay rights hotting up, should players and fans be showing up at all? That's next. Welcome back. Now, before we talk about the World Cup, I have to show you this. Just take a look at the state of this desk. Harry Cole's side of the desk. Um, It's fine. looks like a messy boy's bedroom. (laughs) My side of the desk, and I did not set this up just look at that <laughs> calming music exactly how it ought to be yes i'd like a little halo that's right uh, but welcome back we are heading to the world cup now it's happening this winter now if you are going don't forget your passports don't forget your tickets and apparently don't forget to hide your sexuality After LGBTQ activist Peter Tatchell was yesterday stopped from protesting against the Gulf States' attitude to gay people, Foreign Secretary James Cleverly this morning advised visitors to respect the culture of the host nation.
6: I have spoken to the Qatari uh, authorities in the past about gay football fans going to watch the World Cup and how they they will treat our fans and international fans. Um, And, you know... They want to make sure that football fans are safe, secure and enjoy themselves, and they know that that means that they are going to have to make some compromises in terms of uh, what is, uh, you know, an Islamic country uh, with a very different set of cultural norms to our own.
3: Well, joining us now from Sydney is Peter Tatchell himself. Good evening, Peter. What happened with the Qatari police? Did they arrest and detain you, as you said? Talk us through it.
8: Well, I was standing outside the National Museum of Qatar on a main busy road by a big roundabout um, for about 35 minutes before state security and the police arrived. Uh, While I was protesting there, um, many members of the public who were passing by were shocked and gawped in disbelief that anyone would dare stage a protest because protests are basically illegal in Qatar. Um, When the security and police arrived, Um, They uh, took away the placard, Um, they said I was not free to leave, that I had to stay there with them. So I was basically detained in their presence on the curbside for 49 minutes while I was interrogated. Um, At the same time, they spotted that my colleague from the Peter Tatchell Foundation, Simon Harris, was taking photographs and went over to him and seized his mobile phone and deleted um, most of the videos um, and still photographs that he'd taken. Fortunately, he'd managed to upload some of them already, so that the message, the images, got out. Um, Peter, um, you're, um, it was very interesting and entertaining to sit...
3: I was just going to say, your, your, the incidents caused major ructions here back in London. The Foreign Secretary is saying, essentially, that gay people should rein it in if they travel to Qatar for the World Cup. He's a big viewer of this show. What would you say to James Cleverley tonight?
8: Well, I was astonished and shocked by James Cleverly's statement. It was all focused on fans respecting the culture of the host nation. Uh, there was nothing in his statement about criticising the home nation for its violation of human rights. I was also shocked to learn that he plans to go to the World Cup. You know, this is colluding with a homophobic, sexist and racist dictatorship. That is not what we expect a British Home Secretary to do. Going to Qatar for the World Cup is like going to the Nazi Olympics in Berlin in 1936. It gives kudos to an intensely vile, repressive regime.
2: Incredibly strong words there, Peter. What do you think James Cleverly means by respecting cultural norms? What do you think he expects people to do when they are in the country?
8: Well, I can only assume that he expects people to conform to the way in which... Qatar um, represses the human rights of women and LGBT plus people. Uh, You know, in Qatar, women are not free and equal citizens. You know, they have to get permission from a male guardian in order to marry, get certain jobs and to study and travel abroad. That is a total abrogation of their human rights as a female person. Um, you know, James Cleverly should be focusing on those abuses and not expect that female fans going to the Football World Cup have to behave in a way that denies women and LGBT plus people the dignity and respect that they deserve.
2: Peter Tatchell, thank you for joining us. Now, joining us in the studio is
3: Team GB's Mark Foster and The Times' chief sports correspondent Matt Lawton is in Manchester.
2: Mark, lovely to have you with us. Thanks, I just want me. to start on those James Cleverly comments. I mean... How does it make you feel to hear the UK government essentially saying compromise who you are? And, you know, would you be going?
9: Um, I suppose Peter mentioned it there, first of all, isn't it? Rather than stating and having a go at the way that they are in their country, first of all, it was respect their their rules, which I kind of get in a sense. Mm. Um, But, I mean, from, from my point of view as an athlete, I suppose as an athlete or as a footballer, when your whole... Uh, career has been about representing your country and going somewhere, I don't really... I kind of don't put the onus on the athletes. I'd like to say that they wouldn't go, mm. but ultimately it comes down to why did FIFA put a championship there in the first place? But
2: as a gay Look, athlete, doesn't that mean you have to stop being who you are?
9: Uh, I, su- well, I suppose... Well, I'm not, well for, for me, when I went to the Olympic Games, I didn't... It wasn't about what I was doing in the streets and no. I wasn't about... You know, I was there to do a job and that was my job, so to speak, but uh, I was never put in that position. Mm. So I never had, and things have changed an awful lot from when I went, when, the good thing is we're talking about this. Yeah. As opposed to, uh, I wish the World Cup wasn't there and I wish that people wouldn't go there and do events. But, what but about, they do. And it's all about money. But
3: you've talked about the athletes so far and the politicians. What about the fans? Do you think the fans should boycott? Is that fair on them?
9: Uh, oh, well, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because I think, isn't there, isn't there like no drinking policy? <laughs> and we all know what fans are like. So I wonder how they're going to actually contain the fans when it comes to it anyway. Um, Does the boycott start with the fans not going? Does the boycott start with people not watching on television back at home? Mm. I mean, I love the World Cup. Will I watch it? Yeah, I probably will, just because I love the World Cup. But it's one of those situations whereby I think unless people do make a stand, and that's what Peter did there, by going over and making a stand and doing a protest, which you shouldn't do, unless people do something, and that's always been the the thing with LGBT rights, unless someone does something and stands out and takes the flat for it, nothing changes and nothing happens. Mm. Yeah. Let's bring
3: in uh, Matt Lawton in Manchester. Matt, you were there that night, that day that uh, Qatar won the bid for the World Cup. Was it a stitch-up?
10: Well, given that the the people that voted on the FIFA Executive Committee, it was only a couple of years later in the same place that they were being dragged out of the hotel with blankets over their heads by American federal officers... Um, yeah, you've got to say, despite <laughs> Qatar's denials of any kind of corruption, um, it, it, it doesn't look right. We've seen on so many occasions that these major sporting events, the process by which they are awarded, has been corrupted. And it it absolutely stunk at the time. I remember standing at the bottom of the steps of the Lac Hotel in Zurich and William, uh, David Cameron, Prince William, David Cameron and David Beckham coming down the stairs. And they, you, you could tell they thought they, they had it mm. in the bag and the next day they got one vote. So, yeah. um, it's look, I agree with Mark and Peter. It, it shouldn't be there. This decision was made 12 years ago when people like Harry Kane were still at school. They shouldn't be the ones that are punished for it. But I tell you what depresses me about it is the fact that... I, I, I interviewed the, the head of the World Cup organising committee in Doha three years ago. And at that time, he was talking about an effort being made to be more inclusive, an effort being made to educate people in Qatar, police officers and so on, about being more, more understanding about, about people. And I got the impression then that if two men were walking down the street in Doha during the World Cup holding hands, that people yeah. would understand that, that they had visitors from around the world. Yeah. But now the messaging is very much that that won't be tolerated.
2: Matt Lawton, Mark Foster, thank you both so much for joining us. An absolutely fascinating discussion and one that will no doubt Mm. be brought into politics in the next couple of days. But that is it from us tonight. Thank you all so much for watching.
3: And whatever you're doing, I'm told to say, make sure it's uncensored.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Good night.